0: South of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 223, covering the week of July 13th through July 17th, 2020. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Abbeville Institute. Like our Facebook page at Abbeville Institute. And of course, subscribe to our YouTube page at Abbeville Institute. You can find all those social media accounts at our webpage. It's abbevilleinstitute.org, A B B E A-B-B-E-V-I-L-L-E, V I L L E, institute.org. While you're there, give us an email address. We'll give you a free ebook, Exploring the Southern Tradition. It's a great book by 20 Abbeville Institute scholars. You're going to want to get that book. When you get on the email list, you'll get our daily dose of Dixie Monday through Friday. It's a great way to keep up with what we're doing, the articles that we published, which, of course, we cover in this podcast once a week. You can support the Institute by clicking on that Support tab at the top of the page. You can donate monthly, annually, or through a one-time gift. We do exist on your generous contributions alone. So if you like what we do, if you like our podcast, our website, and some of the other programs that we have, please consider a tax-deductible donation to the Abbeville Institute. You can also support the Institute indirectly by clicking on that little Amazon button at the top of the page. When you shop at Amazon, you give us a little bit of change. So when you buy your books or goods, whatever you get at Amazon, you can help support the Institute that way. Always remember that our application, our mobile app, is free of charge. So go on out and go to your mobile app store, whether it's on Apple or a a Google device. Search for the Abbeville Institute. It will come up with the app. You download that, and you've got the podcast on the go, and, of course, all of our lectures and other things as well. So it's a great way to keep up with what we're doing. Of course, always rate what we're doing at the Institute, please, if you like our podcast, rate it wherever you get your podcasts. Share our material on social media. Get engaged. Let people know that you are supportive of the Southern tradition. And you can do that as well by getting your Abbeville Institute apparel. Click on that shop tab. You can get high-quality embroidered material so you can advertise the Institute while you're out walking around town. We've got T-shirts, hats, golf shirts, all kinds of great stuff. So you can do that as well. Lots of great ways to support the Institute, and we do uh, appreciate all of your support. And we live in some pretty dark times, so uh, this is the time that we need to stand up for some things and defend the Southern tradition, which is what we try to do on a daily basis. So let's talk about the material for this week. And uh, I think that one of the things that people need to understand about the current political climate, this is really nothing new. Uh it seems that we're living in a bizarro world where down is up and up is down and uh, that the sludge has risen, risen to the top, the cream has flo- has sunk to the bottom. And in some cases, that's very true. But I think the thing that we need to understand, and if you have a perspective of history, is that this is simply part of a long process that's been going on now for nearly 200 years. And It really began with the French Revolution and then carried forward into the 19th and 20th centuries. And now here we are in another part of that ongoing revolution, the ongoing process to transform the world, not just America, which, of course, is an extension of Western civilization. And the South being the conservative section of America, it is the conspicuous section that needs to be destroyed. But the process by transforming the world and some type of Jacobin revolution. Now, you could even go back before that to the 17th century. In America in particular, if you start looking at the zeal at which the Puritans wanted to make everyone like them. And this is exactly what's happening today. You see, what we live in, and I've said it before on this podcast, I've said it in my own podcast, The Brian McClanahan Show. What what we're living in, of course, is New England's version of America. This is it. You see, because in New England, you could actually be thrown in jail for dissent. So if your opinion was considered dangerous to the community, they could throw you in jail for that. Now think about where we are today. If you don't wear a mask... You could be thrown in jail for that. And and there's some towns that have started doing this kind of stuff. I mean, this is what we're living in. We're living in a puritanical nightmare. Now, I know some people are, you know, they get upset as I've talked about the Puritans on this podcast. I've talked about them again in my own podcast. People will respond, they'll send me emails saying, well, you I mean you can't you can't bash the Puritans. There, there are good things about the Puritans. Puritan culture is highly destructive, at least when it comes out of New England and what it attempts to do. It is the original cancel culture in America. Remember, the Puritans canceled Christmas. They canceled everything fun, sports, music, dancing. And when you go back and look at colonial America and you find what Southerners had to say about New Englanders before the American War for Independence, these are things they talked about. They really were not very happy with the way Puritans ran the show. As long as it stayed in Massachusetts or in New England, they were fine with it. But as Puritans started being expansionistic, and of course the Great Awakening, which took place in the 18th century, brought a lot of that into the South, Southerners started bristling at this. Wait wait a second here. You're, You're denouncing the fact that we have balls? That we have dancing? I mean, what's going on here? So... The, uh, the zeal at which the Puritans wanted to remake America, make everyone like them, a city upon a hill. This is important because that particular culture has now infiltrated everything in America. Why? Because the North won the war. So when you look at the pieces that we had this week, I mean, this is the underlying theme. Start with John Devaney's piece on Monday. Pietas in an era of revolution. I want to focus on one paragraph in particular. He says, As for impious Jacobin, he is reduced to a violent and dangerous caricature, a figure whose politics are both ironic and insane. The Jacobin decries all forms of bias, racism, sexism, and a host of other isms with relish and glee. He is, however, quick to define the positions of his adversary. Protests from the adversary notwithstanding. Think about this. As John's saying, the the Jacobin defines who the people are, and if the people say, well, that's not us, it doesn't matter, because he's already labeled you everything he wants to, and of course that gets picked up. Thus, one who is sympathetic to the South is a racist, a defender of traditional marriage or biology is a sexist, transphobe, homophobe, perhaps even an omniphobe, as that should cover all the phobias. These silly stereotypes used as so many bullets in a game of invective are a perfect example of what the very behaviors our dear Jacobin purportedly opposes. In defense of the oppressed, the Jacobin becomes a nightmarish oppressor. So often the Jacobin's conclusions in this infantile game of name-calling is counter to reality. Two examples will suffice. The American Jacobin and the American Girondin insist... The late unpleasantness was only about slavery, but we know from the very letters and journals of the people who fought and died in that conflict this is not so. A host of issues and conditions motivated Billy Yank and Johnny Reb to take up arms. As for the Jacobin charge of systemic racism, where exactly is the system? Jim Crow, the last system of racism in the United States, died an overdue death a long time ago. And indeed, if systemic racism is so pervasive... How have so many people of African descent risen to such prominent positions of power and influence in politics, entertainment and sports and the media? Each of these areas of endeavor are crucial to shaping the culture of contemporary America, at least for the present. But see, this is the thing. The accusation is made and it sticks because the American Jacobin wants to remake America based on his critique and... That critique then becomes standard, boiler, boilerplate. I mean, this, this is it. This is what people think of when they think of Southerners, just racist. I had someone tell me that they were at a protest and uh, at a Confederate monument, and they were defending the monument, standing there in peaceful protests. And somebody rode by on a bike, some old guy, saying, Why do you hate? Why do you hate? Why do you hate? Just yelling it as they rode by. This is how stupid these people really are. Who hates anyone for standing there saying, you know, we need to keep this monument up? Why is that hate? Well, because these things have to be canceled. They have to be canceled. And you see, that is the Yankee vision of America. If it's dangerous in their mind, it has to go away because the liberty of the community is more important than than your individual liberty. And freedom is defined by freedom from fear, and that statue makes them afraid. So to them, to this Yankee version of America, these things have to go. So Jacobin is, of course, a nice name for it, but these people are really just Yankees. That's all they are. We have Yankees everywhere, and Yankees are the root of the problem. You look at the piece that was run by Jim Peterson on Tuesday. And he points out, at the end of the piece, according to a historian of slavery, David Bryan Davis, in the Slave Power Conspiracy, the final paranoid phase of the abolitionist movement was launched by as few as 25 people who had a large media presence and financial resources. Does that not sound familiar? Most Americans are not on board with tearing down statues. Most Americans are not on board with the culture war that's taking place in America right now. This is where people have said since the 1960s, we're looking at the silent majority. I still think that that majority exists. Most Americans are not on board with the nonsense going on. But you have a very dedicated minority with extreme amounts of resources, both media and money, and they make it seem like everybody's on board with this, when we know this is not the case. When we know most people, I mean, if you had 100 people show up at a rally, I bet you there's 10,000 people that would be against that rally. If you had 10,000 people show up, I'm sure there's 100,000 people who are against it. But they don't go out and rally and riot and do all the things that the other side does. What we're running into problems, of course, is that the culture has become such that this becomes uh, people start supporting these things indirectly because they don't stop them. But you think about that quote, as few as 20... Now, this is David Bryan Davis, who's by no means a pro-Southern ideologue. I mean, he's at all. But he's saying, look, about 25 people directed the abolitionist movement. And so Peterson says, the reality of abolitionism is that there were some who held to a modern concept of racial equality... But far more were driven by a hatred of the South and belief in their own cultural superiority. This is Yankeeism, right? That's exactly what that is. This is the Jacobin that John Devaney is talking about. This is the Yankee mentality. They hate what they don't have because somewhere somebody is having fun and they don't want them to or you know they're doing something they don't want them to, whatever it is. They hate what they don't like or what they don't know, I should say. They hate what they don't know. They hate cultures alien to theirs, and so those things need to be done away with. Most would have been in agreement with abolitionist and renowned author Ralph Waldo Emerson, who predicted that black people being an inferior race would eventually go the way of the dodo bird into extinction. This is what Ralph Waldo Emerson said about Africans in America. Are we canceling Ralph Waldo Emerson? No, because he's on the right side of things, because he was against slavery. Yet, he was very much a racist. Uh, this is where we have these vitriolic statements that are now being made. What Devaney describes as the American Jacobins, and then they're saying this is what these Yankees were saying back in the 19th century, in the 18th century, in the 17th century. You see, that's when cancel culture really began. And as Boyd Cathy points out on Wednesday, cancel culture is going to continue. It's going to get worse unless we stop it. And he gives you a couple of examples, some egregious things that are going on. Right now, uh, there was actually a, a uh, book that Shotwell Press published entitled Confederophobia. If you haven't read it, it's really good. The, the uh, impetus for that book was actually an Abbeville Institute article that Paul Graham wrote. And then he made a book out of it. But Amazon withdrew it for a short amount of time because they said it was Confederate flag merchandise. Of course, it was put back. But think about, as as Boyd says, think about the ramifications of all this. Gone with the Wind has essentially been canceled, it's pulled by HBO Max. The Hollywood reporter puts it. The movie comes, or I'm sorry, the move comes as media companies reappraise content in light of nationwide protests over police brutality and systemic racism after the death of George Floyd, a black man killed by Minnesota police. Long considered controversial for his depiction of black people and its positive view of slavery, Gone with the Wind faced face, renewed scrutiny. So, Boyd says, I, I know what you're thinking. America's not going to let this happen, but it is happening. He says, this is one of the aspects of the culture war we find ourselves in. Indeed, Pap Buchanan back in 1992 spoke of it in what were then considered stark and divisive terms. But what he said back then was only a mild forecast of what has occurred since 1992. That conflict is about who we are. It is about what we believe. It is about where we stand for Ameri- as Amer- what we stand for as Americans. There is a religious war going on in our country for the soul of America. It is a culture war. As critical to the kind of nation we will one day be, as was the Cold War itself. But this is some, I mean, you got a book canceled because it has a Confederate flag image on I mean, how silly is that? Gone with the Wind. I mean, a, really a benign, the, the, I'll say this. The most popular movie of all time is now being canceled by HBO. What I did see about that is that when they canceled it, people rushed out and purchased it in large numbers from streaming services and other things so they could have it because they wanted to have it. Uh, and he points out that you know, conservatives are as much behind this as anything else. So what do we do? Well, we have things like the Abbeyville Institute to try to keep the Southern tradition alive. There was a time when... As I've said before, that when Ireland, the green flag of Ireland, was illegal. And I think that day is coming for the Confederate battle flag. It will be made illegal somewhere. You won't be able to have it. I think that time is coming. Uh, I don't see it happening in the South, but I could see it happening in, uh, in, in places like Massachusetts or Connecticut or Oregon or Washington State. I could see it happening there. I mean, it certainly could where it would be illegal to have that flag. If you have that flag, you're breaking the law. I could see that coming because we live in such a stupid time period, an un-American time period, or at least an American time period based on Puritan culture, Yankees. We live in a Yankee time period, cancel everything. And the real problem, as John Devaney points out, and of course, Boyd points out, and Jim Peterson points out, is the abject stupidity of the other side. They don't really know anything except platitudes and slogans. And the last two pieces of the week speak to this. Because you see, Jack Marcourt, our resident scholar in Japan, one of our resident scholars in Japan, published a fantastic wrote a little essay, 1619 lies Matter. If you're not familiar with the 1619 Project, it's now being used as a curriculum in, in several schools across the United States And the idea is that America was founded in 1619, not 1776. But, uh, the point of that being that it's all based on lies. And one of the lies that's being told, and people quickly pointed out, wait a second here, there were white slaves in America before 1619. And the people behind the 1619 Project immediately went on the offensive and saying, no, that's not true, these people weren't slaves, they were indentured servants. And what Jack does, I think, very well in this particular piece is rip that entire argument apart. And he uses scholarship from the early 20th century through the late 20th century to show that. Now, one of the books that he cites, White Cargo, we actually wrote a review of years ago. Uh, And we've, we've been talking about this before this point. That yes, there were white slaves in America. Yes, slavery was a complex topic. Yes, slavery is something that was North and South. But you see, the lie that somehow this was all about, I mean, as, and, and I love this quote in this particular piece, not because it's a fantastic thing that the guy said, but because it undermines everything that, uh, that the 1619 Project says didn't happen. And uh, it is, uh, he says, in his 1933 study, Gray wrote about Sir George Sandys' 1618 plan for the Virginia colony, in which Sandys proposed that the white workers then being held in bondage to the treasurer's office of the colony should belong to said office forever, and that the service of whites bound to Berkeley 100 be deemed perpetual. So in other words, this was a year before the slaves arrived in 1619, But yet, these were supposed to be perpetual slaves. And U.B. Phillips cited a or gave a quote from John Pory, who was the secretary of Governor Sir George Yardley and later the first speaker of the House of Virginia Assembly, in which Pory said that quote: "White slaves are our principal wealth. White slaves, not white indentured servants. White slaves." Now, there came a time when, by the 18th century. These two things were different. I mean, you had, and they, they differentiated Africans from Europeans in terms of labor. But here in the 17th century, nobody was differentiated. It was not based on race, it was just you were a slave. And so I love this piece. And actually, the image he shows is a man, a white man being whipped and a black man watching, right? So this white man is being whipped as a slave. Horrible. I mean, the whole thing is horrible. But the problem is we've gotten into a game where uh, you one side has to be right and one side has to be wrong. We can't just say there's, this is a complex institution uh, and there's uh, complexity that would not fit a particular political narrative. We can't do that anymore because that's not... Part of the agenda. And I think Jack does a good job here of bringing all of this out. And finally, we have Clyde Wilson's piece on Thursday, which is just another great offering by the great Southern scholar. The title is The Real Legends and Lies of the Civil War. And this little piece is again about lies. You see, it's the 25 dedicated people that are out presenting lies that get picked up by the media. You've got the 1619 Project with about 10 people that write garbage. And then the media picks it up, and because of money and influence, it becomes standard. And it's all wrong, whereas what we're doing is going to be denounced as being being biased, unobjective, all the pejoratives used against us. Lost cause mythology. So I want, to, uh, I want to read some of this piece that Clyde wrote because it's so good. He said, I caught a snatch of news the other day that even with all that is happening in our time stunned me. It seems that Hollywood is gearing up its machinery to produce entertainment about Confederate war crimes. This so contradicts the historical record that it can represent nothing but willful ignorance, dishonesty, and malice. For Hollywood, anything they don't like or find alien must be Nazi and atrocious. The Confederacy was fighting against an invader. It had no opportunity, even had it wanted, to commit crimes against an enemy civilian population, which it seldom saw. The war was on such a vast scale that you may find a few incidents of anything you want along the border, but that is to, make, that is to mistake the odd for the usual. The Missourians who raided Lawrence, Kansas, did not harm a single woman, although they were hard on the men. And they had ample grievances about harm, including death that had been done to their womenfolk by Federals to justify retaliation. President Davis was quick to condemn excesses the few times they happened, unlike Lincoln, who praised and promoted the perpetuators of atrocities against civilians. Southerners saw the war as a contest between armed men conducted by rules that had arisen from the slow development of Christian civilization. The ruling element of the North saw the war as a crusade to crush a people, fellow Americans that they had long been taught to hate or disdain and who stood in the way of their power, progress, and profit. Again, the Yankee problem in America, going all the way back to the 17th century. Long been taught to hate because they had dancing and balls and they celebrated Christmas. Right? I mean, th- these things go back to that. Crimes, the simple truth about the war, which Americans deliberately refused to see because its recognition would subvert the self righteous belief that they are heirs of a benevolent war to preserve the Union and free the suffering slaves. The plain factual explanation of the war is that Lincoln formed the biggest army ever seen in the Western Hemisphere in order to invade and conquer the southern states and deprive their people of the self-government which they had enjoyed since the war for independence. Lincoln and his supporters solemnly declared they were not acting against slavery. Pressed to give a justification beyond the amorphous one of preserving the Union, they confessed that the people, labor, and resources of the South were needed for their profit. Now, if you want to talk about war crimes, that was a big one. Every honored American statesman and thinker before 1860 had said that the Union could not be preserved by force. That would violate the nature of the Union, destroy the Union, and substitute, in violation of liberty, a despotism. The crimes committed by federal soldiers against Southern civilians were as abundantly documented as anything in history. From the first day the troops passed over the Potomac and Ohio rivers, private property was fair game, and the hatred and destruction increased with the difficulty of conquering the brave and skillful opposition of the invaded people. Sherman's systematic war crimes in Georgia and the Carolinas were deliberate and intended not an unfortunate collateral damage. The celebrated military campaign was primarily directed not at armed enemies, but at non-combatants. That is only the biggest example of a policy carried out every day, everywhere. Sherman and Grant had already practiced in Mississippi. Simple facts, hundreds of Southern women had pistols put to their heads by officers demanding valuables, or had their earrings torn off. Many more, including the sick, aged, and pregnant, were made homeless. Fresh graves were dug up on the hope that they might contain hidden valuables. Think about it. Houses were robbed and ransacked and then burned after furniture, portraits, artworks, pianos, keepsakes had been destroyed or stolen. One Yankee officer's wife furnished her house by theft from a Georgia home, and this is an example, not an oddity. Thousands of times in almost every state, homes were destroyed, houses, barns, and essential farm equipment burned, food carried away or ruined, Livestock carried away or destroyed, often including children's pets. Churches, schools, colleges, libraries, even a convent did not escape the deliberately set flames. A number of South Carolina towns were literally wiped off the map. The feds also took civilian hostages and sometimes executed them, a standard Nazi proceeding. And against all the laws of war, used prisoners as shields. Not all Union soldiers participated in the war crimes. Some were shamed by them, but the malfactors included officers and were deliberate. You have to remember that the Union Army was made up of largely people who had been paid to enlist. In fact, Lincoln and his supporters in something rare in, his, some, something rare in history spent more money paying people to enlist than they did on food and ammunition. Remember that no respectable northerner had to serve in the Yankee Army unless he wanted to. So the federal forces were full of riffraff of the big cities and impoverished rural regions and brutal German immigrants who had no idea of American institutions and no connection to their victims. The victims were by no means only the rich, as is now being claimed, and black people suffered as well as white from being robbed and from lack of food and shelter. Recent studies have steadily been showing an increase in the count of southerners, black and white, who died indirectly from the invasion. The war crimes are are abundant, although they are not confederate. It is a bad cause. It has to be sustained by lies. So again... Lies. We start with the Jacobins, which are really Yankees. We go forward to the nineteenth century fake news. We had the fabrication. We had, you know, a concerted effort by a well-funded and a well-funded media campaign to demonize the South. That cancel culture had been around since the 17th century. It's still around to this day. We have lies now being perpetuated as truth, and those things are creating a climate of hostility towards the South and Southern traditions, which is not going to stop with the South and Southern tradition. It's going to to engulf all of American history and all of American traditional history. All of American traditions are under attack. Just look at the attack on the Star-Spangled Banner, which, of course, has only been the national anthem since the 1930s, and uh, I've been very critical of having that played before everything under the sun. I wrote an article in Chronicles magazine about it. But regardless... Uh, the uh, the fact is, we have an, a concerted effort to try to undermine Western civilization, and it began as early as the 17th century. Yankees have never stopped being Yankees, and I'll I'll quote Clyde again. He says, "About every every 50 to 80 years, you know, the Yankees start to act up again. They they don't like something, so they go after it, and." This is what we're dealing with in America today. It has nothing to do with race or class or gender. It's about culture, and it's, it's the design is to wipe out a culture that people don't like. What's the other side of that? I don't know. What's the response to it? Well, I mean to defend it as much as we can, but also to seek peaceful solutions to this, and that would be decentralization. Uh, and I think that's certainly something that the Institute has been promoting for a long time. Decentralization works. It works. It's a peaceful solution to these problems. And so this is why we need to support those type of activities. And um, I think that's the only way out of this. It's through peaceful decentralization. I hope you enjoyed the pieces of this week in the Abbeyville Institute. Until next time, good day.